It is amazing the different phases that we go through in our lives. We, especially you see it, I think, when you have family, when you have children, and how the relationships change with those children. When they are young, when they are little, there is a sense in which you are the authority. And hopefully as you speak, that is what they will do. And if they choose not to, in our family we talked about consequences. And there were consequences for those decisions to move in directions away from mom and dad. Then you get into those wonderful teenage years. And yes, there are challenges, but it is an incredibly exciting time. As you watch God mold those children of yours and you watch how what you have placed into their lives begins to develop and grow. Sometimes there's decisions you won't agree with and there's a different form of consequences. And then there's this incredible time that Cindy and I find ourselves in now. And that's where all three of our children are grown. And the relationship has changed in some incredible and amazing ways. Now, if you know my family, you know that our oldest, our daughter, lives in London. And so we don't get a lot of interaction there. Um, We love Skype. We love the fact that we have an international plan on our cell phones that doesn't cost us any more to to call England and things like that. And we have an opportunity to interact. But our two sons, Brennan and Sebastian, Sebastian is living with us right now as he kind of gets things together and he seeks to, to set off in directions. And Brennan and Sarah live five minutes away. And there is a relationship that exists, particularly with those that are close, that is amazing. It is amazing in the sense that I have watched my relationship, particularly, again, with my sons because of their closeness, change. Yes, I am still dad. Every so often I'll even hear daddy. But In one sense, they are not under my authority in any way. Hopefully, they still respect me. Hopefully, they still continue to develop that relationship and we share. But I noticed something. The sharing is unique. The sharing is not so much them telling me what's going on in their lives and me sort of giving that instruction. It is very much now two adult men getting together and talking about their lives and talking about the directions that their lives are moving in. In our home, as you gather in our home, if you are ever there for a mealtime, there is a sign of leadership within our home that I have sort of had for all the years that we've had children. And that is dad chooses who's going to pray for the meal. And so as we sit down and we begin to eat and as we we get ready to eat, I will look up and say, Cindy, would you pray for us? Or Brennan, would you pray for us? Or Sebastian or whoever it might be. But something's changed. 
If you come into my home, that's still true. But when Cindy and I go to Brennan's home, I'm not the one who says, would you pray? Now it's Brennan. Something has changed. That home, that family is his and Sarah's. I have a wonderful connection, as you saw this morning with my grandson. But I'm not the leader of that home. That rests with Brennan and Brennan and Sarah. Things have changed. Things have shifted. I remember an incident like that with my mom when that mantle of leadership, if you like, shifted. I've told the story before that in my family, we used to do what's called indoor snowball fights. They have to be unique when you live in Louisiana. And then we would take our napkins after our meals were done and we'd roll them up in balls and we'd start throwing them at each other. Well, my short sort of serious-minded mother thought that was terrible. And I remember her at the end of a meal as we were having a snowball fight and we were about to leave, my mom declaring, there will be no more snowball fights at this table. And I remember lovingly saying to her, Mom, I love you. But this is our family, Cindy and I. And we do snowball fights after dinner. (laughs) Something changed. We're studying the principles of church leadership, of how the church is to be organized, and does God's word say anything about it? Is it an area of complete grace where, you know, we simply do what seems to work best and there's sort of a pragmaticness to what we do? Or are there biblical principles? Are there ways that the the first century church organized that we can look at and say, you know, I think those are truths, those are principles that sort of lay down a foundation of how a church ought to be led. Now, as I mentioned before, this is not one of those, let's go out and get the messages. That hopefully will begin next week as we begin talking about racial relationships and racism and ethnicity and what does God's word have to say about that, and we're going to spend a lot of time there. But this is boilerplate. This is meat and potatoes. This is, what does God's word say as we are in the process of... Changing, rewriting our constitution as a church, not to reflect something very, very different, but to reflect who we are as a church and to reflect what we believe God's word says about leadership. And so we begin, we continue this discussion about leadership. And a couple weeks ago, we, we looked at this reality, that God's word provides an organizational framework for the church. I think, I think there's a basic sort of structure 
that existed within the New Testament church and the first century churches, they were growing and developing, which is usable, which is applicable to where we are as a church today. But what we said as we were looking at that is the emphasis of the New Testament is not on the structure, but on the character and quality of that leadership. For no matter what structure you have, no matter how we write our constitution, no matter what we write in there and articles we write in there, the fact is that if there are those in leadership who do not have character, who are not men and women of quality, then that principle, those articles can be misused to damage the local church. And so there is a structure. We're going to look at it a little bit more this morning. But we understand that character and quality is essential. That's why when Paul was writing to Titus and he was describing to Titus how to choose elders for the church that he was shepherding, that he was helping to establish, he wrote this list of those who were going to be leaders and what they ought to be like and the characteristics of those people. And it becomes a wonderful map on what it means to grow in maturity in our Christian lives. There to be men in, in, in Titus chapter 1 who were above reproach. Good examples. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, as Paul is writing to Timothy, who is shepherding this church in Ephesus, a church that was well established, a church that had been going on for quite some time, he writes there not just about elders, but elders and deacons. And again, he says, these are men and women that must be people of character, people of quality. And so no matter what that structure may be, as a church, as we choose our leaders, as we, like in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 15, choose those that in some way represent who we are, that we choose well, and that as a congregation we choose people have a quality of spiritual life. That doesn't mean they don't fail. It doesn't mean there aren't arguments in, in elders' meetings or deacons' meetings. It doesn't, but there's a quality about their lives that says these are people that ought to be leaders of God's people. Now, this morning, as we begin to look and expand that a little bit. We come to understand this, that God provides an adaptable structure of leadership for churches to function well. There is a structure. There are principles. There are ways to develop church leadership that appears particularly in the book of Acts, particularly in the book of uh, 1 Timothy and Titus, particularly in the book of 1 Peter. But what also we see is that it seems adaptable as the church changes, as it grows, as it scatters, as it develops. 
And so as we begin to look at Scripture, the one thing that we notice in kind of that sense of the principles is this. In changing times, the earliest history of the church demonstrates an adapting leadership structure. Now, if you want to find the earliest history of the church, where do you go? Book of Acts. And you turn to the book of Acts, and there you see this early church, this thing started by Jesus, this thing that Jesus said even the gates of hell will not be able to to keep out, that this thing as it's growing, and as you begin to see it from the earliest days when there were only 11 men who were the apostles, and then they add a 12, and then they begin a a church in Jerusalem, and that lasts through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 even though God said they should, should spread they're still in Jerusalem until you get to chapter 8 and God scatters them and said it's time for the church to go into all of the world in a period of about 150 to 200 years The church goes from this little gathering to being spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. And if you read church history, even beyond. Now, when you read that structure, the very first thing you notice in the book of Acts is for the first eight chapters, the only ones that are mentioned in terms of the leadership of the church are the apostles. The apostles did this. The apostles did that. The apostles received this. The apostles responded in this way. And so as you read through, you see Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the very first description of this gathering of people. The very first time Peter ever preaches, 3,000 people respond. That's amazing. They gather together and they begin to function as that, that early gathering, that early church. And it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And it was led by the apostles as they were leading this group of individuals, gathering together, trying to figure out how do we live this new covenant? How do we live that which was established by Jesus through his death and through his resurrection and through his ascension and through his sending of the Holy Spirit to indwell each individual and to make them a part of the body of Christ? Christ, the church. They were trying to figure it out. Acts chapter 4, verses 33 and 34, as you're working your way through the book of Acts with great power, the apostles, the foundation of the church. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and the apostles are that foundation as they build this, this underpinning that would create the superstructure above it. They testified of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. It would be the apostles that bring discipline into the church. It's the apostles who receive the money coming into the church. It's the apostles who seek to organize the church. You see that in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, 
also sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge. He kept back part of the money for for himself. But notice, notice where the money goes. But he brought the rest of it and put it where? The apostles' feet. In the early days, the leadership of the church rested with these now 12 men as they added another one to take the place of Judas. And of a church of several thousand, which Jerusalem was at this time, 12 men could handle it. That's the beginning. But as the church began to grow, as their ministries began to grow, particularly as you come to Acts chapter 6, and you have there this feeding that was taking place of the widows of, of Jerusalem. Some were born and raised in Jerusalem. Some were coming in from the dysphoria, this, the scattering of the Jewish people. Some were of Greek kind of background instead of more Jewish background. And so there was a disruption that was beginning to develop as some said, you know, they're getting fed more than we're getting fed. And there was a, a, a problem developing there. And so a second level was added to the apostles, was added deacons. We find out from Romans chapter 16 with with Phoebe and others that also deaconesses will eventually be added. Men and women that were there to assist the apostles in their leadership in accomplishing and managing what was going on. And so we read in Acts chapter 6, and I'm kind of jumping around a little bit as I put it up on the screen, just to give us the sense of it. So the 12, that is the, the, the apostles, the disciples, gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. We can't stop the primary responsibility that God has given us in order to be involved with all of the, the management and all of the administration of trying to take care of those that we're trying to feed. And so let's change it a little bit. And so they say, brothers, speaking to the congregation, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them. Does it change the oversight? No, but it changes the specific responsibility. And we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole group. Now, there's a lot in that passage. We're going to look at Acts chapter 6 when we're dealing with the whole idea of, of ethnicity and, and, and racism and racial relationships. Because when you read through Acts chapter 6, one of the most amazing things that you read there is in this dispute, every single one of the men that were chosen have Greek names. That's significant. But in this context, what we notice is there was a second level of leadership. The apostles are still over and and, and responsible and, and all of those things, but the deacons are brought on and later deaconesses, all called deacons, in order to make sure the church is managed well. This two-tier leadership structure, those that are responsible overall of the church and those that are helping to administer and manage that, 
is consistent all the way through the New Testament. You will see church leaders in some churches, only elders, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And then in others, elders and deacons, always two tiers throughout the New Testament. But because of its scattering, church leadership was transitioned from the apostles to specific leaders within each local church. Once you get to Acts chapter 8, you have this guy named Saul, also known as Paul. And he's persecuting the church. And so the believers living in Jerusalem scatter. The apostles stay in Jerusalem. But the others scatter, and they begin to establish churches throughout the, the, the Middle Eastern area. They, they go to Samaria, and they go to Antioch, and then they send Paul and Barnabas up into the areas that are north of that area of, of Asia Minor, and then eventually into what we know as Europe today, and, and they begin to establish churches. And how do you have apostles over every single one of those churches? You can't. And so there's a shift that goes on in the book of Acts. You see, another group of people begin to become established. In Acts chapter 11, remember in Acts chapter 5, where did they bring the money? They laid it at the apostles' feet. But after the scattering, after you have these churches developing all over the place, suddenly there's a change. One of them named Agabus stood up. He was a prophet. And through the Spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman Empire. As I was working on, on my dissertation, I, had, I was studying this. And this was an incredible famine. You can read Roman historians that talk about the extent of this famine. The extent of the difficulty of finding food during this period. But the church had a response. It happened during Claudius and the disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. And this they did. Sending their gifts to who? The elders. Not the apostles. What's happening? There's a transition going on. Like Brennan and I, where, yes, I was the authority in his life, in Sebastian's life, in Nicole's life, but as there is a maturity taking place, as they are growing and spreading out in their lives, suddenly there's a shift that begins to take place. You see it in Acts chapter 6. So Paul, an apostle, and Barnabas were appointed, along with other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see, notice, the apostles and the elders. Something's going on. There's a change about this question. What was the question? The question was, do Gentiles, probably 90% of us here, do they have to become Jewish first? and fulfill the old covenant responsibilities in order to enter into the new covenant. 
Paul said, the anointed, no way. But there were others that said, oh, yeah. They must enter the Old Testament before they can enter the New. When Paul and Barnabas, Paul the Apostle, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom, notice, they reported everything, not just to the apostles, but apostles and elders. And as they were discussing this incredible theological concept and important to the very health of the church, it says the apostles and elders meant to consider this question. But one of the most amazing things takes place in Acts chapter 15, verses 12 through 13. Notice who speaks. Notice who's the leader of this conclave. Notice who's the one that speaks for the entire gathering. As they listened to Paul and Barnabas, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Paul and Barnabas, telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they had finished, Peter the apostle spoke up. Is that what it says? It doesn't, does it? In fact, this isn't even James the Apostle. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't follow Jesus through his entire earthly life. This is James who would not come to be a follower of Christ until after the resurrection. This is James who is not an apostle. Spoke up and gave the decision. The elder of the church in Jerusalem. Something changed. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And with them, they sent a letter. And the beginning of the letter, it doesn't say, we the apostles, the foundation of the church, the 12 that are chosen, that are the foundation stones seen in Revelation. It says the apostles and what? Elders. The shift is away from this overarching apostles. There would only be 12. And do you know what happened to the 12? They died. What then? Transition was taking place. In fact, as you read through the book of Acts, by the time you come to Acts chapter 21, and Paul the apostle returns to Jerusalem, he submits himself to the authority of these local church leaders. You find it in Acts chapter 21. This is Luke writing about the band that was traveling with Paul. And he says, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, the elder of the church in Jerusalem. And all the elders were present. And notice this. 
Paul greeted them and reported the details of their ministry. What God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard this, they praised God. But there was a problem. And you see the problem in the next verse. Then the elders said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. But other Jews had been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. There was about to be an explosion in Jerusalem that would cause real problems for the church in that city. And so they come to Paul, the apostle, and said, do what we tell you to do. And Paul submits to their leadership in their home. The focus of the New Testament is on the local church. The primary way that God moves into a community is through the local church. The primary way that discipleship takes place is in the relationships within the local church. And the leadership of the New Testament is focused in the local church. Under the authority of Christ. In fact, Peter talks about Jesus as being the chief shepherd. And then there are no levels between as he talks to the leadership within the local church. It's only later during the writing of the anti-Nicene, what that means is before the Council of Nicaea. One of the writers, one of those that was part of this but wasn't an apostle, a guy by the name of Ignatius, will talk about another level that begins to develop, and that's that of bishops. And they began to use the word bishop or episcopos or the word overseer and use that as sort of like as they were gathering in Jerusalem, there were all these little kind of churches within Jerusalem, small little home churches, and they would choose one of those to kind of be the overseer of all of them. And that's what developed into the popes and all of the rest. But in the New Testament, the principles are a two-tier ministry, leadership within the local church. That's what we try to represent as a church. That's what our Constitution is written on. Not that there isn't grace, not that there aren't other ways to do it, not that, we don't, not that we're saying that people that do it in different ways are to be condemned, but that we believe as a church that this structure, this two-tier of elders and deacons, men and women, are to be a part of what the local church is and a part of their structure and a part of their leadership. 
as we draw principles out of the New Testament. Not to condemn others, but to seek to be what we believe God has called us to be. Now, as you continue, you notice in Scripture that our specific specific tasks are revealed to the church's leadership, which must be accomplished. This is what the leadership is to do. And as you read through the New Testament, you read about elders or overseers do this. I believe the word in the New Testament was interchangeable. Later there would be distinction. And deacons. As you read through, you see the elders are talked about in terms of the tasks that they are to do. They, they are to manage. They are to oversee. They are to administer the affairs of the church. They are the ones that are responsible to God and will give an accounting to God directly to the chief shepherd for their leadership. You see it in the use of the word overseer. Sometimes it is used in the sense of a title, but sometimes it's just used in the sense of be overseers. Be, be the ones that are directing and guiding and, and leading and administering the, the church. One of the ways you see that is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, where the qualifications are given. And it says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family... How can he take the responsibility of managing the church? The the elders are given the responsibility of managing the church. The elders are given the responsibility of caring for the church. This is where we get the word pastor. It's never used as a title anywhere in the New Testament. But the task of pastoring, of shepherding, of caring for the flock is all through the New Testament. They are to shepherd the church. They are to care for the needs of the church. Paul was talking to Peter and talking about the establishment of the church. In that leadership, he says to Peter, feed my sheep. Take care of them. Be shepherds, as First Peter writes, of God's flock that is under your care. This includes discipline. This includes caring. This includes coming alongside in the midst of the struggles and in the midst of the difficulty. This involves praying, I'm, I'm sorry, weeping with those who weep and, and rejoicing with those who rejoice and standing with folks in the midst of the struggles of their lives. The leadership of the church, the shepherds of the church are to be involved in that. The elders are to do that. They are to lead the church by example. And here's where overseer may talk more about the task than the position. Serving as overseers. As the ones that watch over what's going on within the church. Don't lord over those entrusted to you. But do it by example. Not do as I say. 
but to do as I do. Elders and overseers are taught, are said, are given the responsibility of teaching and exhorting the church, protecting it from false teaching. In those qualifications in first, I'm sorry, in Titus chapter one, were the qualifications of an elder to a smaller church that would only need elders because they were small at that time. He says of the elder, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught by the apostles so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Elders of a local church need to know God's word. Need to be able to say, that's wrong. There's a wonderful article in Christianity Today in last week's edition of it that talks about the churches in the 20th century favorite heresies. We have some. You see it in the prosperity doctrine teachings. You, you see it in the way that the Holy Spirit is spoken of. You see it in the way that we speak of salvation. You see it in a lot of different ways and the words that we use and the phrases that we use. And it's the responsibility of the elders to make sure we get it right. And then finally, and there's more, but these are the biggies. They are to pray for the church. If anyone is sick, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. There's another whole sermon there we're not going to get into. But that idea that the local church needs leaders, and it doesn't matter what you call them, the names are, are flexible. You even see that in the New Testament. But in churches kind of move between being staff-run, which kind of function as elders, and being elder-led, and there are other ways. And, but what's important is that church leadership is there. There are those who are accountable before the Lord for what is taking place in the local church. But you say, wait a minute, Keith, there were two tiers, right? There was elders, deacons. What about the deacons? This is the area of grace. This is the area of freedom. You see, when you read about the deacons, apart from the example of Acts 6, managing the feeding of the widows, no tasks are specified. Why? Because it allows for the flexibility needed. As churches grow, as churches develop, you know, the big thing right now is, is having one church with multiple locations. We a New Testament model. There's going to be ways that that leadership has to respond and adapt and, 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 and deal with the things that are going on. Beloved, a church of 150 people takes more than just five or six men to, to lead it. There's so much that goes on with, with finances and building and benevolence and outreach and fellowship and all that goes on. And so those who are called to be deacons, men and women, 
First Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, just like the elders, the deacons must be able to manage his children and his household well. Because if you're not a good manager in your house, you won't be in the household of God. It is that structure, that idea, that framework that becomes the foundation of what we seek to do in our Constitution. Now, I've racked my brains about how do you apply this generally? And one of the things that struck me as I was thinking through that is how important the Word of God is in our day-by-day lives. There are many things that God's Word doesn't give direct guidance. Who to vote for? I wish somewhere there was a verse that said, Thou who liveth in the 21st century, are there principles to use? Yes. Whether or not to get married. How to get married. Who to choose. That's there. But whether I should get married. But when the principles are there, we need to be certain that they guide our lives. And so as a church, we seek those principles. Whether it deals with the ordinances, baptism, and communion, whether it deals with leadership, whether it deals with the purpose of the local church, whether it deals with those kinds of things, it is what God's word presents that ought to guide and direct the decisions we make as a church. But beloved, it is true also that that same principle, that same reality ought to govern our lives. That we should take the time that the word of God should be so much a part of our lives that as we face the decisions of our day, whatever they may be, we know the truths and principles to be found there that guide and direct and allow the word of God to be a lamp on our feet that guide us and direct us. That's true of a local church. That's true of a family. That's true of a believer as an individual. God's word, where it speaks, must guide our lives. Father, thank you for the truths and principles that you give to us, for the guidance that you provide. And Father, we take time each Sunday morning to talk about the fact that all of that life, all of that following of you begins when we place faith and trust in what Christ accomplished upon that cross. We enter into our relationship with you through faith and accepting what Jesus did for us. And Father, each Sunday morning we invite any who are uncertain of that relationship to come and to speak to somebody about it. Father, we are a 
group of people gathered here in your name. Most of us know for certain of that relationship, and we long to seek to represent you in everything that we do, whether it be as a corporate body, whether it be families that are committed to representing Christ, or whether it is individual believers seeking to demonstrate you in everything that we do. May we be those who know your word. And Father, may we be those that do it to your honor and glory. And we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus.